Welcome to the Discomfort by Design podcast, where we showcase people who chase discomfort, live life on the fringe, and pursue high adventure. We bring you the stories that inspire you to go find out. Now here's your host, Taylor Quick. Welcome back to another episode of the Discomfort by Design podcast. I have a great guest for you guys today. Uh, the one and only Mr. Scott Volkortson from Volkortson Firearms. Scott, what's going on, bud? Not much. Thanks for having me, Taylor. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, I've uh, I've been wanting to get you on for a little while. I, I've, I've been kind of keeping up with you and following you through social media. And uh, man, I, I love... Uh, I love your company and what you guys do. And, and, uh, man, I, I just thought you'd be an awesome person to get on here from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Um, uh, you know, from a firearm standpoint, it's a very polarizing topic in our society today. And, and uh, I thought you could bring some really cool insight, man. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I've had, likewise been following what you're doing and it was, it's been great getting you, to meet you at winter strong the last couple of years. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man. So uh, that's uh, and that's coming up next week. I'm I, I'm geeked out, excited. It's it is my my favorite event that I get to go to every year. Um, I still have no idea how I got invited there in the first place, but um, I'm <laughs> so so excited that I did and that I, I've continued to be asked back. Um, it is uh, it, it's a transformative experience and something I look forward to every single year. Well, that's why we got to make sure we can't keep bringing the firearms for the competition part of it. So we get invited back every year. <laughs> just make, make sure you guys got the end track by just the supply and the <laughs> supply and the gun. So um, for, for anyone who's not aware, Scott Volkortson is uh, the name, the face, the, the man behind Volkortson firearms. Um, in my opinion, the best rim fire rifles and pistols on the planet. Um, you guys specialize in, I think, 22 and 17 caliber. Is that right? Yes. 22 LR, 17 HMR, and 22 WMR have kind of been our staple for about the last 30 years. Yeah. So um, just to give you an idea, um, I, I've always, man, I, I grew up around guns and hunting and, and stuff like that. And I, I, I shot 22s for as long as I can remember. Um, and when, when I came to Winter Strong 3 that first year and got to actually put my hands on one of y'all's rifles and, and, uh, and fire that thing, it was just, it's a different experience. And the best way that I've been able to relate it to people is like, it's the difference between driving a Mustang and driving a Ferrari. Um, you know, they're both sports cars. They both go fast, but one is just clearly head and shoulders better in all facets than the other. Um, because it, and just as an example, man, we were, I think we were shooting on, on targets out to 220, 250 yards with a 22 and just plinking the metal every single time. And that is, that's insane. And I think that was the year, if I remember correctly, a lot of credit goes to the instructors on that because that was a windy day. Yes, so, it was. It's fun when you can put the equipment, you know, if you can put the equipment together with instructors like they put together at Winter Strong, you know, it, it, it really allows for people that may have zero firearms experience coming into the event to be able to pull off, like you said, 220 yard shots with a 22, which was pretty fun to watch from my perspective, you know, and you mentioned something there that, you know, you grew up shooting 22s and everything. And that was one of the things um, my dad, who started the company, kind of always drove that point home that regardless of where somebody's at in their firearms journey, they all seem to have a 22. And we kind of go through an evolution where we learn to be, we begin on a 22. And then a lot of times we will graduate to other stuff, but we always come back to the plinking side of 22. And then it seems like as, guys get older, they circle all the way back to the 22 because it's just so much easier on the, you know, to shoot less recoil, less noise, the everything. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, my my oldest son is six, and you know, we started him off with a BB gun and then a pellet gun, and then he started shooting a twenty two a little bit this year. Um, and it's funny, um, the the thing he shot with the most noise and recoil is actually a crossbow. <laughs> um, but he he, uh, <laughs> he took a deer this year with a crossbow, and uh, that that thing probably had more recoil and noise than, than what the 22 he's shooting. I know it definitely has more than the ones you guys produce. Um, but it was really neat to get there and see that and experience that because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're, you're correct. Um, a lot of the credit to that goes, you know, not only to you guys as the gun manufacturer, but also to, you know, Leupold optics was there and they had some of the best optics they, they produce on, on the guns. And then you had instructors who are teaching shooting that shot for a living you know a lot of these guys were you know snipers in the marine corps the army or what have you or special forces guys that have a very deep and intimate knowledge of firearms and so when you combine all that together the best gun you can get for the caliber the best optics you can put on it the best person teaching you how to shoot it it makes for an experience that is extremely extremely quality very, very high quality. And the interesting thing that I always find down there too is, you know, some of the people that attend this event are some of the most accomplished people in, in their particular field that you can come across. But when it comes to this part of it, it seems like they're all able to set any ego that they might have aside and they're willing to listen and take that instruction that's available, which is pretty cool to watch you know there's you know former nfl players whatever you ha- whatever have you might have you know and when it you know buck or brady or any of those guys start talking about the instructional side of it everybody listens it's it's really cool to watch yeah it really is and buck, buck's a unique case man i he he's somebody i want to get on this show as well but you know i i have a um man i have a group of friends that we we have a group chat that we communicate in pretty regularly um Almost every one of them has been through Winter Strong. Um, a bunch of guys you know, like Logan Hanks and Scott Davis and Ross Hillier, um, Brad Godbold, Bo Sandoval. So it's a group of 10 of us, and we talk about it all the time. And something that we, we have discussed ad nauseum is the fact that one of the most looked forward to and high, just what everybody pays attention to every year at Winter Strong is Buck's firearm safety brief. It's the same safety brief that everybody's heard 18,000 times, but the way he delivers it, it's just like the, it's unreal. I don't, I don't understand it. He is one of the best communicators I've ever seen. And I think it's his ability to not skip over the small details. You know, he, he gives that same briefing. So it applies to somebody that's been around firearms for 40 years or somebody that's never picked up a firearm in their entire life. And I think that's hard to do for people is, you know, so often when we go through like one of those safety briefings or when I've even heard them at particular matches or whatever, you know, some of the small details that he emphasizes are missed in a lot of other briefings that I've heard. And I've told him that it's the best safety briefing I've ever heard. One hundred percent is, and it's not. You know, I mean, and the fact that you say that, and then you know, we say that, and and I, I guarantee you, when we're when we get there Friday of next week, and we're getting ready for the safety brief, someone's going to mention something about the best. It's the best safety brief you'll ever hear. It's just a, it's a, it's a running. I say it's a running joke, but it's not really a joke because it's absolutely accurate. Um, so, Scott, what? Man, tell me a little bit about Volcourts and Firearms. I mean, you mentioned that your dad started the company. So give us, man, give us a background. Tell us where it, where it comes from and how he decided that, you know, getting into the firearms industry, specifically being on the rimfire side, was the right move to go and, like, how, how all of this came about. So for him, it started as a hobby all the way back, like, in uh, 1974. He was just trying to find a way to improve his guns that he wanted to use for hunting and you know mom and dad were just starting out they didn't have a lot of money so he couldn't afford to send them off to be worked on or whatever and his mentality was always there's got to be a better way you know have to build a better mousetrap for whatever he was working on 
And we always made fun of him forever because it could be the smallest, simplest project. And he would over-engineer and overbuild it to the point that it was almost, almost funny, but that's, that mentality was built into us then as kids. And it's the same one that we use to run the company today. So he did that for about 10 years and he would just refinish or do general gunsmithing on his buddy's firearms, you know, kind of learning the trade. And then in the mid eighties, he decided, um, ironically, he was actually a tax collector for the state of Iowa, which he hated that role. So he decided he had to get out of there. It was, Time to try something new, and he went full-time into the firearms business. And by that point, he had, you know, he had established somewhat of a reputation locally, and even it started to branch out that he was doing something different than what a lot of other guys were doing. So in the mid-'80s, he went full-time and continued to do general gunsmithing, refinishing, uh just custom gun work, basically anything that would put food on the table was something he would do. And he was fortunate to appear in a couple magazines and get some different traction that way. And in the early nineties, he was at the point that he was actually overwhelmed with work. So what he wasn't sure was even going to become a business. He was now overwhelmed with work and decided he had to narrow his focus because dad was never one that really wanted to hire outside the family. He really liked the, just the true family atmosphere of the company. And there was already people doing great stuff on like the AR platforms on 1911s. And he was trying to find an Avenue that hadn't really been, done, you know, at the same level of some of the other areas of our industry. And that's when he decided everybody has a rimfire. Everybody shoots a 22. He's going to go into that market. And at that time, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to believe now, especially for the younger guys, that there was a time that there wasn't all these aftermarket parts for like a Ruger 1022 or all the 22s that are out there. So it was a very tough sell for him to be able to convince dealers and distributors that people were going to be interested in a aftermarket barrel for a firearm that, and it was going to cost twice what the firearm was like for the Ruger 1022. And fortunately for us, he was very stubborn, persistent and made that work. And then I came on board in 95. And shortly after that, we started manufacturing our own complete firearms and it's just basically evolved from there. We still do all the aftermarket parts that kind of got dad started and down this road. But our complete line of firearms, like what you've shot at Winter Strong, is really what we've become known for. But it's still all highly specialized in the 22 area. Man, that's, that is awesome. So you come on, on to the business and... Then we start making the full firearm platform, not just the aftermarket pieces where you're putting a barrel on or a different stock or whatever. And, and, and you know, that was a great point that you made about the fact that you're, you're having to sell these dealers and these, you know, people that are trying to sell the, the guns, you're trying to sell them an, an aftermarket product to upgrade your weapon. But this one barrel is going to cost twice what the original gun cost anyway. So how did he do that? Because most people look at that and go, well, there's no way he's going to do that. I mean, other than just sheer persistence, how did he sell people on that? So it was a lot of persistence. And from what I remember, I mean, he would just, he was relentless in his approach of, okay, this dealer might not be interested now, but now I'm going to prove them wrong. So even as he kept getting told no from the various dealers we already had, he was still just working on trying to build the most in his mind. If he could build the most accurate 22, especially in a semi-auto that hadn't been done, eventually people would come around to see what he, what he was trying to do. And, you know, typically 22s get a bad rap that they don't function. They, you know, they jam, there's extraction issues, all these different things. 
And he was out to change that narrative. And it just took persistence and it took, you know, getting some firearms in the right hands of people that would write some articles, you know, because obviously we didn't have social media. We didn't have YouTube and all those different things. So he was finally able to, there, there's a couple gun writers that were very instrumental and they said, you know, send me one and I'll play with it. And they started writing articles and people started to take notice that, you know, these, these were serious 22s. They weren't what they grew up on. They weren't just an afterthought. And somebody was really taking a lot of time and putting their energy into it. And in full transparency, I want to also, there, there was another guy down in Louisiana who was kind of taking the same approach in this 22 market. He was doing it from more of a conventional looking firearm where I don't know if it was dad trying to market or what, but he would also, he was trying to make them look a little more exotic and a little more different ways to stand out because he knew he was fighting an uphill battle. No, and that's, you know, that's one of the first things that I notice about the the full line of Volkhorts and firearms in general is they just look cool. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's strange because, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily want to flaunt their 22, you know, they're like, they, they'll, they'll flaunt whatever AR platform they have, or if they have some, you know, big long distance rifle or, you know, some really slick looking pistol, but most people are not like, Hey man, check this 22 out. But with the, with the Volkhorts in line, they all look really, really cool. Um, everything from the shape of the stock to, I mean, just the, the, the way the barrels are, are made, um, man, you've got, you've got some of the sickest looking guns I've ever seen and they stand out. Like, I mean, if you're going to a gun show and you're going down and you're looking at all these 22 rifles everywhere, you're, you're going to have your eyes drawn to the Volkortsen gun because of the way they look. And so whoever made that decision and who can, if that was your dad all the way or whoever convinced him and that was the move, you know, because you want to be individual enough that people recognize you. Um, but you don't, it's kind of, it's, to me, it seems like there's almost a line you have to walk because if you go too far that direction, you're gimmicky, right? Correct. And that was, so dad actually had an uh, art background, which is, I think where a lot of these designs and that originated from. But the one thing that he would always stress to myself, my brother, my sisters was performance comes first and there's there's no compromise on performance once you have that then it's okay to go down that road of trying to make them stand out or look different or anything like that because he would always stress exactly what you just said is if you don't have the performance to back it up it becomes a gimmick real fast and you'll be exposed no and, and you know that's that's a similar performance um, performance-based mindset that, that, that we take on, on my side of, of my career with strength and conditioning, because I mean, just yesterday I had our, uh, our head football coach had seen something on Twitter that looked really cool. Like there was this, this movement, um, that these guys were doing with some med balls and stuff. And he sent it to me. Um, and, and while like I told him, you know, that they're half right because they're, they're doing half of a good thing, um, with what they were, with what they were attempting to do. but they weren't checking all the performance boxes that that particular movement needed to check. And I, my, my response to him was it looks really flashy, but ultimately it doesn't translate to performance. And, you know, that's something that I think is, is very prevalent in our society today because, you know, you're talking about your dad and, and, and your company, you know, came about in the, the seventies and eighties when technology was still like super, super new and really in its infancy. And you didn't have the opportunity at that point to take a really cool looking gun and get on TikTok and go viral in two days. You know, you, you really had to earn your exposure. Um, and I think today we see people that are chasing a gimmick, something that can earn to, you know, get them viral in a hurry instead of putting in the effort and the time to prove performance instead of just finding immediate exposure. 
I think you're a hundred percent right. And especially like you said, in, in your field, in your profession, you know, I think you have a lot of people on Instagram, TikTok, whatever that, you know, maybe they were blessed with great genetics or whatever the case might be. And they get these huge followings and people look to them for advice when in reality, they don't understand the concepts that they're actually teaching. And I, you know, I think that's why it's so important that, you know, like in your guys' field, that people that are really the best at what they do are still working a lot of times with in, you know, working in person with people. Because to me, that's the only way you learn. It's kind of like what we do here is, you know, if, if we only built something that with like, with the end goal of hope this goes viral, I hope this gets us a lot of views. We're shortchanging ourselves as well as all of our customers, because if we don't put it through its paces and it doesn't perform, sure, you may be able to do something that gets a bunch of likes or a bunch of views. But to me, that's always a very short-term game plan and sets you up for long-term failure. Well, it's shallow, right? Like, I mean, it, it, it's a, a flash yes. in the pan because just as quickly as you go viral, Jimmy down the street can do the same exact thing. There's no differentiation between you and them. It's just whether or not you catch the lightning in the bottle at the right time, you know, and, and yes, sometimes and I don't, and I don't want to, I don't want to belittle people who have had extreme success because of a viral post, because a lot of times there is years of proof of concept and performance behind that before they went viral. But I think that, you know, I, I, I love Scott. I love the business side of, of, of things. I, I love listening to um, people talk about marketing and, you know, customer acquisition and how they're going to go and, and, and take a product and make it, you know, a business. I, I, my wife and I watch Shark Tank every week. I love listening to that stuff. And it's just, I, I get a little nerdy about it. Um, and, and so I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so like, I, I, I feel like, you know, in years past people, people that are quote unquote overnight successes, you don't see their 10, 15, 20 years of working in their garage before they became their overnight success. But you know, with the prevalence of social media, with the prevalence of information that's at your fingertips with literally the touch of a button, I feel like people have started relying a little too much on that and, and are not, as you said, putting three, putting things through the paces and, and really toiling with what they have to, to develop something that is of value, not only to the consumer, but to them, because that is something that turns me off of a product quick, fast, and in a hurry is if it's just something that a company spit out for consumer consumption, just immediate consumption. We just want to reach as many people as possible and sell as many of these as we can. I, I, I don't have any desire for one of those. That's one of the things I love about Josh Smith and the knives he makes. So I love about the guns you have. It's that there's so much background. There's so much effort and toil that goes into this to get to this moment, to get to this product that when you hold it, there's, it, it's just, it means something a lot more. Yes. And I think your reference to Josh Smith is the perfect example of what we're talking about here. You know, Montana Knife Company's only been around a couple years, and people are like, wow, they've blown up and they've done all this. But if you sit down and talk to Josh, this has been 20-plus years in the making of when he actually had the Montana Knife Company idea and when he even started applying for, you know, that name and everything that way. And then he spent all those years, you know, mastering the art of, you know, the custom knife making and forging. So, you know, while he also, for many of those years, he also carried on his normal daytime job. So I think people, it'd be easy if you're just looking at what Montana knife company's done in the last two years to say, wow, they've really been lucky where you don't see the 20 years of blood, sweat and tears that Josh has put into that. No, absolutely. And, and people, 
like I said, I, I hate the, the overnight success thought because those are, those are so few and far between. I mean, and it's completely the exception and not the rule. And I would even wager that what many people deem as overnight successes aren't really that there's way more to it. The the whole, I got lucky one time and hit the lottery. Yeah. That, that ain't, that ain't, that ain't real. Um, but you know, then you hear stories like Josh's where he did, he toiled for 20 years and then finally with the right encouragement from the right people decided to take a leap and it paid off. Um, he didn't get lucky. He, the, the culmination of his effort over 20 years finally paid off for him. Um, you know, that's, and that, that is a, a great story. And then even, even you, I mean, you know, Volkortsen, you're not going to see Volkortsen on every shelf of every gun store. Like I'm not, I'm not going to see Volkortsen at Walmart and, and by God, I shouldn't because that's not, that's not your customer and, and that's fine. Um, but what you do see is when you shoot them, when you get them in your hands and when you talk to anybody that owns one, everyone comes back saying that is the best shooting rimfire rifle I've ever shot. It's the best shooting rimfire pistol I've ever shot. And I want a hundred more of them because they are that good. And in, and in just like with Josh and his knives where he says, you know, these are meant to be family heirlooms. Not every gun that I have is going to be a family heirloom. Some of them will either be traded or sold or, or switched around or just not really any good anymore just because they're not you know, high quality firearms. But, you know, a Volkortsen rifle is something that my great grandchildren will be able to shoot and it will still perform the same as it was the day I took it out of the box. And, and that is something we actually, it's one of our core values is that we strive to build heirloom quality firearms. And we understand not all of them are going to be passed down, but when we're manufacturing them, we don't know which ones are being passed down to grandkids and great grandkids, which is why uh, you reference like why you don't see all of our firearms on all the different shelves. We've been hit up for a long time of people say, why don't you build an economy line or like an entry level line so I can get my kids into it. And that's a very tempting thing because I think we would sell a lot of firearms. But what I've always struggled with is then the mindset of how does our team separate the two or compartmentalize the two that, okay, this is the economy firearm. This is the high end firearm. You know, how do you start to, you know, it's, to me, it's too easy to start to meld those two together and you lose something at the top end, which is something we don't want to do. Well, how do you make it an economy gun? Do you take less, you know, is it less quality material? Is it, well, you know, a less quality person building it? Like, I mean, like, I don't understand how you make it a quote unquote, an economy line and still be able to put the Volkortz and name on it because well, your Volkortz and name now means something, right? Apparently we don't either because every time we've ever gone down that road and tried it, we end up right back to where we're at in the exact same spot. So, you know, I think what happens is once you know there's a better way or a better way to do something or manufacture something, it's really hard to say, well, let's just do it this way instead. You know, even like in your profession, if you know there's a better way, you're you're not going to give somebody the easy way or, you know, the less qualified way, whatever you want to say it to get the job done. No, absolutely not. Because you have a responsibility to your client your customer and, and to yourself, because I mean, if you're willing to lower your standards just to, ex just to make more sales, then what does that say? Right. You know, and, and I, man, I have grown exponentially as a coach and as, an, as I wouldn't call myself an athlete per se, but uh, as, as someone who trains and lifts, I've grown exponentially in those categories after meeting Greg Walsh and getting involved with Wolf Brigade. I know you've, um, you've, you've gone down that path a little He's bit. He's phenomenal. You got, oh, my, oh, my word, yes. Um, the, the, the way that he approaches things, man, is just absolutely 
change the way I see everything. And, and the more I pay attention to it, the more I see it in different people in different areas. So where Greg, where Greg pigeonholes that stuff into martial arts, performance, training, physicality, brutality, I see Josh doing it with knife making. I see Casey Bard doing it with seasonings and sauces. I see Andy Mokel doing it with his flip-flop stuff. I see you doing it with Volkortz and Bert and his team doing it with Sorenex. And and I started noticing that. And uh, man, it, it's really cool to see it because it's, it's something that you, you, you always can say, well, there's just something about them. They've got some, they've got some secret sauce, some magic ingredient. It's really not a secret. You just got to pay attention. Yeah. And you're a hundred percent right for, for a long time. I, and I've talked about this before. I've made the mistake of thinking our business was different. It's family owned. It's in the firearms business that all the other business business principles that apply elsewhere didn't apply to us. I don't know where I, why I thought that, but it was one of the biggest mistakes that I made because it's a, the polar opposite. If you start to look exactly what you just said, if you look at Josh, at Bert, at Casey, Andy, all those guys, uh, Greg, when you see people start doing things the right way without compromise, it challenges you to one, be better in your own industry and in your own business. But you realize that that mentality transcends whatever industry or profession you are in. And it's not just specific to knife making or strength equipment or firearms. It, you know, it really does transfer to every single thing you do in life. Man, I, I'm, I completely agree with you. And it's something that, um, it interests me to see it because, you know, I see a lot of people all the time who have an extreme victim mentality. Uh, it's, it is, and I, I hate to say this, but it's very prevalent in our younger generation right now with, with people who I'm around more, you know, I'm around kids between the ages of 12 and 18 every day, five days a week for eight hours a day. And <clears throat> one of the things that our staff here does a very good job um, with is the mentality side of things and trying to teach that specific principle to these kids because man, victimhood has become kind of the trendy, trendy thing to be, uh, in, in our society here as of late is that is something is everything's always someone else's fault. Um, everyone's always out to get me. If I'm not being successful, then there's something hindering me you know, extrinsically, it's not anything to do with, with me and my effort or lack thereof. Um, and, you know, I, I love looking at successful people and seeing why they are successful because nobody's successful on accident. Never. You're never, you don't ever accidentally be successful. You may accidentally get it right one time, but to be successful over a period of time, to have a a tradition of success and, and something that you can point to and say a track record of, of success, that's not an accident. And I, I love the way that you framed all this, man. It's, it's phenomenal. Well, thank you. And I think it's, you know, it can become cliche, at least, you know, to a lot of people, you'll hear the saying of how you do one thing is, can show you how you do everything, but that's something that I, you know, really bought into over the years is, you know, if you do things, at least in my opinion, if you do things the right way and you're willing to do it consistently day over day without chasing that short term, you know, quick fix, what, whatever you're into, if you, if, if you're willing to put that work in, you know, good things will eventually come to you. You know, and I always, um, I always go back to what our friend Brandon Lilly says is, you know, we get to choose every single day 
every decision we make, if it's going to get us closer to our goals or further away, there's, there, there's no standing still, you know, we don't really live in neutral. We either get closer to what we want to do, or we make a decision that we have to recover from whatever it might be. And that's really the way I try to both run business and live life. And I, I fail more than I would like to admit to, but at the same time, it's the only way I know how is to try to live by that mantra. Yeah, man. I, I love Brandon and I love Brandon's plus one mentality. The whole, you know, every decision is a plus or a minus. And, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be in the positive always. Um, you know, and that goes back to what you were saying before, how people want to look for like the, the super sexy thing on Instagram. That's going to get all the views. And that's not a very, you know, I think it's, his plus one mentality, I think is too simple for everybody, for a lot of people to believe how effective it really is, but it, that's really what it comes down to. Well, it can't be that simple, right? Like, I mean, that's the whole thing. If it was that easy, everybody would do it and I would be doing it. And and that's the, the way people excuse themselves out of that is if it was really that easy, then, then why is everybody struggling? Well, generally people are just lazy. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. So I'm not, casting stones anywhere, but it's, it's very easy to justify our behavior. Uh, we're too busy to do that, or we'll worry about that next week, what, whatever it might be. But then 90 days from now, you look back, you're like, okay, that's why I didn't achieve that goal. Or that's why I did achieve this goal was, you know, making those decisions day in and day out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very easy to, because we, Man, I, we have no concept of our own mortality a lot of times, and, and we're all guilty of, of not remembering that, that this life is so fleeting and it's, it vanishes in a hurry. Um, you know, and I told my wife this not long ago. When my son turned six, I was like, okay, that's one third of his childhood is gone, and it happened in a hurry. You know, like, I mean, he's, if he's going to be with me until he's 18 – I'm one third of the way completed, you know, with that goal, with that task of raising him. And, and I was like, Oh my Lord, what have I done? Because I haven't done enough. I haven't done this, haven't done that. And it, it really, it really perturbed me to, to realize how quickly it went by and what, what all I, I, I still had left to do that I felt like needed to be done. Um, you know, and, and so we, we always put off until tomorrow. We're like, oh, I'll get that started tomorrow. I'll get that started Monday. I'll get that started at the first of the month. Or you know what? I fell off the wagon and I'm going to just go crazy for a little while and I'll eventually get back on. And, and it's, it's like we, we feel like we, we are, we're unable to just stop and go, you know what? No. Yeah, I made a bad decision. Yeah, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. But all I have to do now is make the next right decision make the next right decision right now. And if we can approach things like that, then it's really easy to course correct. And it's really easy to start doing that. You know, Brandon, we talked about Brandon, you know, I, I've heard him say this multiple times. I'm sure you have too. But when he reached the lowest point of his life, um, one of the things he said to himself was if a thousand bad decisions led me here, then a thousand and one good ones will get me back out. Um, and that's just such an easy, simple thing to really, when you say it out loud, it just sounds like, man, it can't be that easy, but really it is. Yeah. And, and it is, and it's not, you know, like you said, it really becomes that simple. And, you know, you were talking uh, just a couple minutes ago too, about like, we always say one day, I have a friend that always uses the quote. He's like, one day is a myth. He's like, it's never going to get here. And we, we constantly use that to delay and procrastinate things. And when you were speaking about your six-year-old, it made me think, so my youngest is 18. And, you know, in a couple months, he'll be out of the house, which, like you said, goes by in an instant. But at, when they were, when my kids were younger, I would get caught up in, I haven't done this with them, or I haven't done that with them, or I need to teach them that I need to do and I'd get so caught up in like all the worrying and things I should be doing. I had to, and I wasn't great at it, but I had to remind myself that instead of worrying about all that stuff, what can I do today that I can go do something with them and be present with them? 
and let everything else take care of itself, not get wrapped up in, you know, I only have 12 years left at why he's at home or whatever it might be. I, I, cause I did that for a long time. And I finally am like, I spent all this time worrying, but I'm not actually taking advantage of the present time that he's here right now or they're there when my other kids were at home. Man, and that, that hits home to me. I mean, my kids are, like I said, my oldest is six. I got a four-year-old little girl and a two-year-old little boy. And it, it, it gives me pause often how, how quickly it goes. Um, you know, you, you're like, man, it's, you know, he just turned six in August and it's, then I wake up and I'm like, man, it's February tomorrow and it's already been six months and it, it, it passes by so quickly. So Scott, that's a great segue because I've, I've, I've always been curious. This is something I love asking people who have very successful businesses. How did you balance being the man behind Volkorts and Firearms? You are Scott Volkorts and that's your business. That's your company. That's your, your name. How did you manage being that guy, being a husband, being a father, and everything else that you are? How did you do that? Because that's something that, man, I find myself, especially during football season when I'm coaching a sport and and it's every week, you know, day in and day out for 12, 13 weeks, I find myself struggling with that. So, man, how'd you do it? I was absolutely terrible at it when my oldest was younger. I'd make it to his games and I would do that type stuff. But there was a stretch that we went through in the mid 2000s that was also survival mode for our company that required, you know, more work than I would have liked to have done at that time. So, the, the thing that I learned as I've gotten older is one, there's never going to be a perfect balance between what we do for a career and our home life. It just doesn't work out that way. But I've learned that when I'm at home, when I'm doing something with my kids, be a hundred percent present with them and try to leave everything at the office behind. And as they've got, you'll find, I think you'll discover this as your son and your kids get older is when they're 13, 14 years old, after about 15 to 30 minutes of doing something with them, they're tired of you anyway. But they, I think they still appreciate that, that focused time with them. And something else I had a friend tell me that has always stuck with me was be very transparent with your children on why you're going to be gone. You know, why do you have to travel for this trip? Why do you have to do this? Because when my youngest was much younger, it was a real struggle every time I left the house and it would break my heart when I left to see the, you know, because my wife was left at home to have to console him. But I I was given that piece of advice and I started talking to him almost as if he was adult an adult on what the objective of this business trip was going to be or whatever trip I was taking, who am I going to see? and what it's going to do. And it completely flipped the script where instead of now him making me feel bad that I was leaving, I would get a phone call of, have you talked to this person yet? Or how's, how's the thing, you know, how's the event going? Is it going as you planned? Have you done the, whatever the case might be, whatever we talked about prior, almost to the point, like he was invested in the trip through me. I mean, you're creating skin in the, in the game, right? Like you're, you're giving him, you're giving him a reason to, to understand how that pertains to him because, you know, it's easy for kids to see that, Oh, dad, dad is picking work over me. Dad is picking this over us or whatever. When in reality, you're, you're, you're having to pick and choose. Yes. But I'm choosing to go to this trip because here's how it benefits you. Here's what we're doing. And this is how it's going to grow the company that has your name on it. You know, and, and you create skin in the game. And now instead of him seeing those trips as a negative, it's something that he has a positive association with and you've involved him in it. And I, th- I mean, I think that is a great tool and a great way to, man, to circumvent that and navigate through those, those times. That's really awesome. 
that was a big point. And then I just thought of something else that I had a, that I heard from another guy. I think it was probably on one of his podcasts or something, but he said, also look at it that, you know, our kids are always watching what we're doing. So when they see us trying to maximize our lives and what we're doing, they're learning by just watching through observation. You know, so if, if we hold ourselves back from our true potential, he talked about, are we teaching them not to go for their full potential? And as parents, would we ever tell our kid not to go for it? No. You know, but, but the way they learn so many times is by watching us. So I think if you can meld that idea of giving them skin in the game, the way you phrased it. And then also they see that you're taking chances. You're getting outside your comfort zone. You're pushing I think in many ways is very healthy for them to see. No, I, I agree with that completely. Um, you know, you know it, and it gives them a juxtaposition standpoint to where they're seeing it as it's, it's just dad is chasing these things and he's showing me how to pursue, you know, my goals, but he's also still being dad. And he's, you're, you're teaching your son how to be a father that isn't just, you know, necessarily, and there's nothing wrong with this, but working a nine to five job and coming home every night, there's nothing wrong with that in the world. Um, but, you know, if, if, if your goals are more than that, showing them that there is a way to chase your goals, to pursue your goals, to go achieve whatever those things are, while also still being the dad and the husband that you, you're supposed to be, man, I said, that's, that's fantastic. Well, and I think you hit on it that you can show them, you know, there's a way to do both that you don't, you know, if you're going to go pursue your goals and push, that doesn't automatically make you a bad dad or a bad husband, you know, because I know a lot of people that would not be considered great husbands or great fathers. And, you know, they work a nine to five in their home every night, but if you're not going to be present with your children and be actively involved when you have that opportunity, you know, to me, that's not that's not teaching your children the right way either. Just, you know, being home. Yeah. I mean, you may as well just be gone, right? Yes. You know, and, you know, and, and I'll, I, I struggled and my kids would probably tell you, I still struggle with this of, you know, being sidetracked because our phones are always on us. And my youngest probably broke me that habit the best because he got up and walked away one time and he said, when you're done looking at your phone, I'll come back down and talk to you. Oh my. And he was, he was actually saying it from a sarcastic perspective. Cause that's, he's very much like me, which is uh smart ass most times, but he, so he was saying it sarcastically, but he might as well have taken a knife and driven it right through my heart when he said it. But it's, you know, I think we, I know I'm guilty of it. I'm like I said, it's one of those things that I really work on is when, when they're telling me a story or when they want to talk, I put all that stuff down now and I listen and he probably has no idea that he ever said that or that that's what changed me. Man, I, I, oof. Yeah, I, 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 that, that, that one had to, had to sting a little bit. You know, I was sitting on our couch oh, last stung. night. <laughs> sitting on the couch last night my two-year-old was and I were in there my my wife had my other two back in the playroom and my my two-year-old had come in and they him and his mom have a little mama and me music class they go to on Monday nights and normally um, my daughter has gym and tumbling cheerleading type stuff on Monday nights and me and my my oldest son go to uh, a martial arts gym he does kickboxing I do jujitsu um and last night, uh, man, we didn't, we didn't go to the, go to the gym last night. I just, I felt like death warmed over and I was running a little fever and didn't want to, uh, didn't want to sweat on top of people and give them anything that I, I may or may not have. I think it's just a small sinus infection. I'm pretty well over it today, but we went home. And so when, when Tucker, my youngest came home, he had already spent a lot of time with his mom. And so she went to go see the other two and I was hanging out with him and he would do something um, and, and he would stop what he was doing and look at me and just say, daddy, you watching, you watching. 
and just wanting so much of my attention. Um, and, and, and even though I sit in there completely present and giving it to him, he still every time was checking to make sure that I was dialed into him and, and that, that he was my focus. And I mean, our kids crave that they, they want our attention because, you know, especially when they're that young, we, we hang the moon, right? You know, dad, dad is a superhero and I, I, I dread the day that my kids find out I'm not. Um, and, uh, Man, it's 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 tough because you know even with him sitting there last night, just daddy watching, daddy watching, and I just just sitting there kind of yeah, man, I am, and it's you know super engaged with him, but at the same time was like, how often does he look and see that I'm not watching? And I think that's a great point. And when you think about it, you know we're we're at our jobs or careers or whatever. You know the it seems like the majority of the day, a lot of times. You know, so we only have, you know, and especially when the kids are younger, they usually go to bed a little bit earlier. You know, you only have such a short window for them to get your attention. That that was something I had to learn. You know, and and I've even told my oldest, I said, you know, I kind of feel bad because I feel like I'm a much better parent with our second two kids and I was with you just because I, I learned a lot of lessons from, you know, going through it for the first time that I wasn't always present. I, you know, I think as we mature, we just become, you know, I'd like to think we become better people, but that was something that I struggled with when I looked back at how I raised my first one versus my third one. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. Man, my, my first one was tough because I just started at a um, at a university as a strength conditioning coach. I was um, I was in the, I was on the an assistant on that staff and um, had six or seven teams that I was responsible for. And that started June first, and Trip was born August third, and we were right in the middle of you know starting football season, and it was just nuts. And I remember, um, and I would leave the house in the mornings, most mornings at four thirty, and I would get home between seven thirty and eight o'clock at night. And man, I just, it, it killed me that the only time I saw him was if, if he woke up in the night and was hungry, trip wasn't like that. He slept through the night, most nights from 10 days old. And so, um, man, I, I missed a ton and it, it, it still to this day bothers me. And, you know, and I think that's, you know, one of those things like you talked about earlier, balance. It's so hard to, it's so hard to figure out which way to go. But at the same time, I think we can, we find some comfort in the fact that we are out there trying to do good. You know, it's not like you were sitting in a bar, you know, sitting there all night with your buddies drinking beer and completely missing out on your son's, you know, his early eight or his early days, you know, but, but I completely understand where you're coming from. It's such a tough balance and it's so hard to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, man, it really is. So, um, well, man, what is, you know, uh, and, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think that's, I think that the one thing that like I encourage people to do, and I wish I would have done it young or more often when I was younger is surround yourself with a group of people, you know, like, you know, like we're going to winter strong next weekend. Um, and obviously not everybody can go to that, but you know, find other guys that you, you can bounce ideas off of and talk about these things because I kept very much to myself when I was younger regarding all this. And it, probably limited my growth because of that. Um, you know, because once again, I have a friend who he, he, he has taught me that, you know, so many times we get in our own head and we think that our problems are very unique to ourselves or stuff that we're struggling with where he says, but many times those issues and problems that we have are 
you know, those are commonplace and our skill set and our talents are unique, but we always get it the other way around. So he's like, if you can open up and talk to some other guys, you know, you can get out of your own head. And I think it helps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to create a narrative in your head and to buy completely into it and, and, and be blind to reality because when, when you're the only viewpoint you see is yours, then, then there's nothing else, you know, to, to show you any different. And, and that's one of the things that is so valuable about that group of guys that I have that I talk, I mean, seriously, there's not a day that goes by that we don't talk to each other. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just, you know, nonsense, just, just goofy nonsense. But there's also a lot of times where it's very pointed and very, um, growth oriented and very deep. And when you, when you're talking to people like Bo Sandoval and Logan Hanks and Ross Hillier and, um, you know, Brad Godbold and Scott Davis and all like our, our whole group is just some really awesome dudes. Um, and when, when, when you get all those guys together and those viewpoints start coming in and those different perspectives start coming in on different things, it is very, very good. And it, it, and it'll, it'll light a fire under me about a lot of things often. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I I've been very open. I look, I look up to, he's younger than me, but I look up a lot to like a guy like Bert Soren. You know, it looks like from everything I know, you know, he's, he's doing it right with his children. He runs a great company, building a tremendous culture. You know, he's got a great relationship, but yet he still finds time to hunt and do those things that he enjoys. You know, and, and I'm sure he would look at it and say, that's not the case. You know, he struggles in different areas, but I always try to look to guys like that and say, what are they doing that I can take and apply to my life? Right. You know, when I was younger, I would take, I would look at somebody and be like, okay, I need to do everything they're doing, which that never worked for me. But I've learned that, okay, you know, this is what he's doing in this particular area. How can I apply that to my situation? Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think that's something that our society in general struggles with. We see somebody that we want to emulate for whatever reason. You know, Brandon Brandon Lilly is a great example. Um, dude transformed his body completely, transformed his mind, transformed his heart, his body, 100% transformation. And people want to emulate that. And that's great. That's great. But Brandon will be the first one to tell you, you've got to do it the way that works for you, because what I did was for me. That's why it worked for me. But, you know, you can take some aspects of what I've done and apply them to your life in a way that works for you. But you can't, you know, only, only person that's going to get the exact results Brandon got with the methods he got is Brandon. Yes. So, oh man, what, um, what does the future look like for Volkhorts and firearms? Because, you know, Man, y'all are y'all are chugging right along, and uh, got a great line of, of firearms out. Uh, I know you've got you know Colby Pavlock, who is um, a professional shooter for Volkortsen, and so what what all do you guys have going on, man? What's the future look like? So right now, the the last couple years, you know, the firearms industry has been crazy with trying to base. You were able to sell everything you can manufacture, and then some, which is a great spot to be in. But for us, it really limited what we could do with designing new products and innovation because all of our machine capacity was tied up with trying to play catch up and get our existing orders out. So we've we've added a bunch of equipment. We're finally getting to that point that we can start to work on some new projects again, which has us excited. So our immediate plan is we have new projects out in the rimfire space or coming out in the rimfire space later this year. And at some point over the next couple of years, I'm sure we will evolve and eventually get back into the center fire market. It's a tough thing, you know, because people have been asking us for 15, 20 years, what's going to happen when you're, when you saturate the rimfire market or when you're done with the rimfire market and we're busier now than we've ever been. So 
it's one of those weird dichotomies of trying to do we branch out into you know the center fire market and stray from what we know and what we build our name on or do we continue to try to innovate in the rimfire market and so that's where we're at right now is in that innovation of the rimfire um some different projects that hopefully we get launched this year and that's what has us excited and then just to continue to grow um our business you know and we're very careful with how we want to do that because from a culture standpoint, that was something we struggled with early on as we started to add people and it took us a long time and we're still not there yet to kind of build that back. So we're very careful in how we want to grow and expand so we don't lose like the family atmosphere that we have here. Right. <clears throat> Scaling's got to be just right. So real quick, um, because you'll explain it infinitely better than I will. Um, for anybody listening that's not doesn't understand what is the difference between a rim fire rifle and a center fire rifle. It's just basically what it sounds like is on a rim fire. The primer is located in the rim of the cartridge where on a center fire, the primers in the dead center of the, that cartridge. And the reason they use different one, you know, obviously rim fire is also something for those that don't know. It's not something you typically reload. There's a few guys that do a little bit of it on some specialty stuff, but that's few and far between where center fire is a lot of different ammo that can be um, reloaded. It's, you know, like your five, five, six, your two, two, three, for those that are somewhat familiar with firearms, but not really. And the reason for the different ones is the one thing with center fire is you are able to build a much, um, you're able to handle a lot more chamber pressure where with a rimfire round, you are really limited by what you can do there. So that's why it's the smaller calibers, like 22 and 17s. Right. So <clears throat> you mentioned a product, and you said something about a new product in the rimfire category? Yes. What can you tell us about that? Basically what it's going to be is we have our straight pull bolt action that we've been doing in 22, and we're going to expand that into some other calibers and the neat thing about it is it's, it's not a conventional bolt action that requires you to cam it up and back. It is simply a toggle that you flip back and forth straight forward, straight back. So it's a much quicker platform than a conventional bolt action, but yet it's not a semi-auto. So where it really has its place is when a guy puts a suppressor on it, because there's no blowback of the bolt and there's no report coming out of the ejection, it's, you know, it's a locked breach. It's much quieter than what you'll see on a semi-auto. Now you've had, uh, you've had that bolt style at Winter Strong, yes? Yes. Yeah, in the 22. We haven't done it in 22 mag and 17 HMR yet, which is where we're headed. Man, that, those things are fun to shoot. They cycle so, so quick. Um, because you're right. I mean, there's no like lift up, pull back, chamber back down, flop it down. It's just, you know, one, two bang. And it's, 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 it's not a semi-automatic, but it is, it is closer to a semi-automatic than a traditional bolt is. Um, and it, it yes. is, it's smooth and, and it's fast. I'm excited to see, see what those look like. And, you know, the other thing that we're always doing is even though like some of our products, we've had them out 10, 15, 20 years they are constantly being worked on and designs are improved. And a lot of times it might not be designs that people can, or it might not be changes that people can even see or notice, like just by picking up the firearm, but it could be something internally that we've completely redesigned or changed, you know, because our goal is to completely eliminate that idea that 22s don't run. Yeah, well, uh, you, you've eliminated that idea for me. Um, I, I, you know, like I said, the first time I first time I squeezed off a round uh, out of one of your rifles, I was like, okay, this is different. Because, um, like I said, I shot twenty twos forever. Uh, I still have the the twenty two that my dad got for me when I was a kid. 
Um, it's what my son shoots on right now when he when he shoots when he shoots his twenty two. He's going to shoot on that. Um, Got to kind of be careful with it because I'm a right handed shooter and he's a lefted left handed shooter, and so it kind of interjects at his face. Um, so I got to kind of be careful with that. But um, you know, it's 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 definitely there's definitely a difference that you can tell. So, um, man, where can, where can people find you, um, you know, social media wise, you know, if they're, if they're interested in your, uh, your line of firearms, what's the best way to find all that information and to contact you? The best place is just volkwartzen.com is our website on social, like on Instagram is probably where we're most active. It's volkwartzen underscore firearms. And unfortunately, because of the powers that be at a lot of these tech places, you have to, you may have to type it all the way in or all the way into the search. And then me personally, it's just Scott Volkortz and no spaces, no underscores on Instagram. Well, I will, I'm going to post the, um, the links to uh, not only your website, but also your Instagram, uh, social media stuff. And if you are curious about, Volkorts and firearms and this winter strong thing that Scott and I have both talked about. Um, the Volkorts and YouTube channel has some great videos from the last several years of winter strong that you can go and watch and see a lot of their, uh, rifles and fire and, uh, pistols and other firearms in action. Um, they are, they are fantastic. I cannot recommend them enough to anybody that, is interested in firearms, especially, but wants to shoot something that is a very, very easy to shoot, uh, be very good to look at and, and something that's going to last forever. Um, so if, if that's something you guys are interested in, definitely check Scott out, check out Volkorts and firearms, uh, and, and uh, give him a chance to earn your business. Uh, you will not regret it. So. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, just hit out. Even if you just have questions, you know, we realize we build a higher end product that might not be for every new shooter or somebody just getting into it. But the other part of it is we love to just talk firearms and answer questions and help, help people, you know, direct them to the right place. So, you know, if nothing else, just hit us up and we like to chat. Yeah, man, absolutely. Scott, I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day. I know you guys are busy. Um, but, uh, come on and just chat with me. I I've been looking forward to this since we locked it in last week, man. And it uh, did not disappoint. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Um, well, brother, I appreciate it. And I will see you next weekend. I am looking forward to it. it I know it's going to be probably cold like it usually is, but it's going to be warmer than it is here. So I'm all game for it. Dude, actually, you know what? I was looking at the weather the other day. I think the high is in the sixties. Well, we have a high of about two here today, so I will. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and take the 60 at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right, It's in the 40s here in Mississippi, but it is soaking wet. I haven't seen the sunshine in several days. It's been lovely. (laughs) Anyway, man, we'll see you in South Carolina next weekend, bud. Sounds good. Look forward to it. See you, man. See ya. You've been listening to the Discomfort by Design podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a review. And we'll see you next time.